Chapter Twelve of the Countess of Charny by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The First Massacre. Manda had hardly been slain before the commune nominated Santerre as commanding general in his stead, and he ordered the drums to beat in all the town and the bells to be rung harder than ever in all the steeples. He sent out patrols to scour the ways and particularly to scout around the assembly. Some twenty prowlers were made prisoners, of whom half escaped before morning, leaving eleven in the Foyant's guardhouse. In their midst was a dandified young gentleman in the National Guard uniform, the newness of which the superiority of his weapons and the elegance of his style made them suspect he was an aristocrat. He was quite calm. He said that he went to the palace on an order, which he showed the examining committee of the Foyant's ward. It ran, The National Guard, bearer of this paper, will go to the palace to learn what the state of affairs is, and return to report to the attorney and syndic general of the department, signed, Boirie, La Rue, Municipal Officers. The order was plain enough, but it was thought that the signatures were forged, and it was sent to the city hall by a messenger to have them verified. This last arrest had brought a large crowd around the place, and some such voices as are always to be heard at popular gatherings yelled for the prisoner's death. An official saw that this desire must not spread, and was making a speech to which the mob was yielding, when the messenger came back from the hall to say the order was genuine, and they ought to set at liberty the prisoner named Sulot. At this name, a woman in the mob raised her head and uttered a scream of rage. Sulot, she cried. Sulot, the editor of the Acts of the Apostles newspaper, one of the slayers of liege independence. Let me at this Sulot. I call for the death of Sulot. The crowd parted to let this little wiry woman go through. She wore a riding habit of the national colors and was carrying a sword in a crossbelt. She went up to the city official and forced him to give her the place on the stand. Her head was barely above the concourse before they all roared, Bravo! Teroini! Indeed, Teroini was a most popular woman, so that Sulot had made a hit when he said she was the bride of citizen populace, as well as referring to her free and easy morals. Besides, he had published at Brussels the Alarm for Kings, and thus helped the Belgian outbreak, and to replace under the Austrian cane and the priestly mitre a noble people wishing to be free and join France. At this very epoch, Tironi was writing her memoirs and had read the part about her arrest there to the Jacobin Club. She claimed the death of the ten other prisoners along with Sulot. Through the door he heard her ringing voice amid applause. He called the captain of the guard to him and asked to be turned loose to the mob, that by his sacrifice he might save his fellow prisoners. They did not believe he meant it. They refused to open the door to him, and he tried to jump out of the window, but they pulled him back. They did not think that they would be handed over to the slaughterers in cold blood. They were mistaken. Intimidated by the yells, Chairman Bonjour yielded to Tyroini's demand and bid the National Guardsmen stand aloof from resisting the popular will. They stepped aside, 
and the door was left free. The mob burst into the jail and grabbed the first prisoner to hand. It was a priest, Bonnion, a playwright noted for his failures and his epigrams. He was a large-built man and fought desperately with the butchers who tore him from the arms of the commissioner who tried to save him. Though he had no weapon but his naked fists, he laid out two or three of the ruffians. A bayonet pinned him to the wall so that he expired without being able to hit with his last blows. Two of the prisoners managed to escape in the scuffle. The next to the priest was an old royal guardsman, whose defense was not less vigorous. His death was but the more cruel. A third was cut to pieces before Sulot's turn came. "'This is your Sulot," said a woman to Teroigny. She did not know him by sight. She thought he was a priest, and scoffed at him as the Abbe Sulot. Like a wild cat, she sprung at his throat. He was young, brave, and lusty. With a fist blow, he sent her ten paces off, shook off the men who had seized him, and wrenching a saber from a hand, felled a couple of the assassins. Then commenced a horrible conflict. Gaining ground toward the door, Sulot cut himself three times free, but he was obliged to turn round to get the cursed door open, and in that instant twenty blades ran through his body. He fell at the feet of Teroigny, who had the cruel joy of inflicting his last wound. Another escaped, another stoutly resisted, but the rest were butchered like sheep. All the bodies were dragged to Vendôme Place, where their heads were struck off and set on poles for a march through the town. Thus, before the action, blood was spilled in two places, on the city hall steps and in Fouillant's yard. We shall presently see it flow in the Tuileries, the brook after the raindrops, the river after the brook. While this massacre was being perpetrated, about nine a.m. some eleven thousand National Guards, gathered by the alarm-bell of Barbaru and the drum-beat of Santerre, marched down the Saint-Antoine ward and came out on the strand. They wanted the order to assail the Tuileries. Made to wait for an hour, two stories beguiled them. Either concessions were hoped from the court, or the Saint-Marceau ward was not ready and they could not fall on without them. A thousand pikemen waxed restless. As ever, the worst armed wanted to begin the fray. They broke through the ranks of the guard, saying that they were going to do without them and take the palace. Some of the Marseilles Federals and a few French guards, of the same regiments which had stormed the Bastille three years ago, took the lead and were acclaimed as chiefs. These were the vanguard of the insurrection. In the meanwhile, the aide who had seen Mandat murdered had raced back to Tuileries, but it was not till after the king and the queen had returned from the fiasco of a review that he announced the ghastly news. The sound of a disturbance mounted to the first floor and entered by the open windows. The city and the National Guards and the artillerists, the patriots in short, had taunted the grenadiers with being the king's tools, saying that they were bought up by the court and as they were ignorant of their commander's murder by the mob, a grenadier shouted, "'It looks as though that shuffler Mandat had sent few aristocrats here.' 
Mandat's eldest son was in the guards' ranks. We know where the other boy was, uselessly trying to defend his father on the city hall steps. At this insult to his absent sire, the young man sprung out of the line with his sword flourished. Three or four gunners rushed to meet him. Weber, the queen's attendant, was among the St. Roch district grenadiers, dressed as a national guardsman. He flew to the young man's help. The clash of steel was heard as the quarrel spread between the two parties. Drawn to the window by the noise, the queen perceived her foster-brother, and she sent the king's valet to bring him to her. Weber came up and told what was happening, whereupon she acquainted him with the death of Manda. The uproar went on beneath the windows. "'The cannoneers are leaving their pieces,' said Weber, looking out. "'They have no spikes, but they have driven balls home without powder, so that they are rendered useless.' "'What do you think of all this?' "'I think your majesty had better consult Syndic Roederer, who seems the most honest man in the palace.' Roderer was brought before the queen in her private apartment as the clock struck nine. End of chapter 12. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia.